Like Google Maps on a long road trip, One Top Chef is helping us find our way through the endless recipes scattered inside of that junk drawer in our kitchen to the dish we're craving. That's right. By understanding just four cardinal directions of cooking, we can make anything delicious. Our gourmet guide, Samin Nasrat. The book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit. Let's get lit. <laughs> This is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Good. Me too. Anything fun, exciting happen that you like to share with the class? What's your week been like? <laughs> I went to the library. <laughs> Look at you leaving your house. <sighs> yes. Yes, I actually it? only leave the house to go to the library. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I picked up like six books. Wow. Wow. Is it open, open? Or is it like you just have to come and pick up your book and leave? Almost there. Almost open. Actually, they've moved our pickups to the second floor. So guess what I did? I walked <laughs> around and browsed the library yeah <laughs> can you believe that it feels That's, so good yeah it feels like normal normalcy what is it normalcy i yeah. say normalcy okay it feels like that it feels like a little bit of that coming back that's wonderful <laughs> oh i want to go how about you? What did you do? What are you excited uh, about? Uh, nothing. I did have a great Saturday planned out, but then I had to do our taxes. <laughs> my part of it anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry to put the kite kibosh squash on your, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, every time you want to have fun, adulthood comes rearing its ugly little head. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yo. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I'm glad you have fun. Let's move on to Society Says, you guys. This is the portion of our show where we share your comments, listeners and readers, with the rest of our Lit Society. Alexis, is there a comment you thought particularly lit that you like to share this week? I did. I found a comment on Apple Podcast from Hilber78. And they said... (laughs) These ladies, not enough words. Their humor and love for reading shines through in every episode. I love their rapport with each other and reverence for literature and discussion of often difficult topics. It's the way I want book club to be. Let's get lit. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you, Over 78. Thank I you love so it. much, guys. <laughs> I love our listeners. I do. How about you, Kari? Did you find a comment that was particularly lit? Yes, Mm -hmm. this is from Apple Podcasts, where I think you got your last comment also. And this is from Brooklyn Girl 55. And they say, didn't know I needed this. First, yes to the Kari representation. 
My name okay. is Kari and I feel welcome here. <laughs> you are welcome, Kari. Welcome. <laughs> also, I am so glad to have found a book, a podcast for black women like myself to discuss the impact of great literature. I'm a new subscriber and I found you all because of your episode on the warmth of other sons. I came mm. for that episode, but I definitely stayed for the commentary and unique perspective on the rest of the episodes. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. We, we appreciate that, that episode. Uh, the Warmth yeah. of Other Sons is a two-part episode. We only have a couple of those things. Um, mm-hmm. Anna Karenina is the other one. And in The Warmth of Other Sons, we got to talk about our families and what made them leave the South, uh, what their journey was like. I got to interview my mom and grandma. Um, we so learned those are your always grandma was picking cotton at three years old. Two. That was always fun. Two years old. Oh, she two? said she was picking cotton. Yep. And I said, but grandma, you couldn't even really walk. She said in the South at that time, you learned to walk fast. <laughs> so thank you, Brooklyn Girl 5-5. We appreciate you. Remember, guys, if you have a comment that you too would like to share uh, with us, please reach out to us on social media. And we especially love when you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you guys too. We love and you. we might share thank your you. comment on the show. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Moving on. Each week, readers, we choose a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. And today we're reading, what what is this called? A culinary novel? Something like that. So our theme is in that mindset. Our theme is, what do our favorite foods say about the type of person we are? Alexis, (laughs) I must ask, if you were on death row, what would you choose as your last meal? Um... A hamburger. I knew it. I did know that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a hamburger, but not that double meat stuff. You hate when nice... two meats touch. Yeah, that's gross. In, in Chicago, it's a really normal thing for a single burger to be two patties and for that's a so double odd. burger to be three. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. It's gross. But it is a Mm-mm. thing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and I don't like it. Mm. Where's your favorite hamburger in Chicago from? Just mm. a side question. It's been so long since I yeah. had a hamburger. I can't even remember. Yeah. No, I get um, it. I could tell you my favorite one in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. What's Where's your favorite one in Wisconsin, Milwaukee? Fro- Cops Frozen Custard. Oh, their burgers are salty sometimes. I but say no good. salt. Yeah. Say mm-hmm. no salt. Duh. Yeah. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to say um, Asheval in Chicago. I did. Oh, I remember them. I did like that. That was a tasty they, burger, but they they're not my favorite. one, though, that where the single burger has two patties. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I had to remove that. Yeah. That was gross. <laughs> yeah, you made a scene. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> it's not the first time you made a scene. You know, readers, we've no, never talked about no, this. No, no. Okay, I won't, I won't bring it up on this episode. But we all have a friend who has to cause a scene at a restaurant every wow. time you go out. I did bring up how we were in Rome and he was like, can I get a coffee to go bye bye? And I thought, why is she talking like that? But also here, you always make a scene and I love it. You're never rude. Oh, you my just, goodness. Yeah, dramatic. Well, anyway, a hamburger anyway. for you. What would you have to drink? Oh, what would I have to drink? You know, I would want a cocktail. Mm-hmm. 
Of course, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> I would want a cocktail. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have a cocktail, and for a snack, I, do I just get one meal? Do I get snacks throughout the day? I don't if know I if get you know snack, how death row works, but you're gonna get one meal, then you're gonna die. <laughs> so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to have a cocktail with um gin. A gin oh, and tonic yeah. would be my favorite. Mm-hmm. That's one yes. of my favorite combinations, a martini and cocktail. That gin cuts right through the fat of the burger. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. Yes. Well, yeah. according mm-hmm. to the Huff Post, that means that you, Alexis, are all about Americana. Hey, y'all remember on that Nancy Drew episode where she said she liked them good old books? I heard the dog whistle. Did y'all hear it? Well, apparently your love of American food means that you probably own. Now, this is in a HuffPost article. We all know to trust the Huffington Post. So they say if you love hamburgers, you probably own an American flag denim shorts. Yup, that's you. Fourth of July is your favorite holiday. Mm-hmm. And you like reliability. Mm-hmm. Actually, I none do. of that. Maybe the last one explains you, but no, you don't have American none flag of the denim other shorts. Stuff I don't. That doesn't apply to me. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. But we are going to get to what that really says about you a little mm-hmm. later on. I think for me, it would be a pizza and a beer. Peroni. Just oh. one slice of a perfect pizza, margarita, mozzarella, basil, and tomato, and a beer. That would be great. Because Ooh, when I was really, delicious. really, really, really poor, living on my own, that's a great meal. That's a five-star meal, and anyone can enjoy it. Or at least mm-hmm. I could when I was dirt poor. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that, that meal has a special place in my heart. So, really, let's get to the science of it. Um, in scientificamerican.com had a very interesting article titled, Why Does Food Taste So Delicious? And in it, they, from a serious uh, point of view, they are scientists after all, they dissect why we find cer- certain foods so delicious. And I just want to uh, talk about a few sections of this article. Again, the title is, Why Does Food Taste So Delicious? It's from 2013, um, and it was originally published in the title, the Food Issue um, title magazine in um, their uh, printed publication. But anyway, um, they say in the past decade, our understanding of taste and flavor has exploded with revelations of the myriad and complex ways that food messes with our consciousness. Ooh. It's not so much about, and now I'm in quote, it's not so much about truly what the food is and what it really tastes like, Because no one knows what anything tastes like because taste is relative. Oh, mm -hmm. can I blow your mind for a second? So I already knew that. Right. Mm -hmm. So the hamburger you love tastes to you different than it would taste to me. Mm -hmm. So on and so forth. Um, Also, hormonal changes can Mm -hmm. affect the way we experience the same food at a different time. You know, it doesn't taste like it tasted that day last year. Um, So um, back to the article of all the ways that our biases filter the taste experience, deliciousness is both ingrained and learned both personal and universal. It's a product of all five senses, hearing included interacting in unexpected ways those sensory signals subject to gross revision by that uh, clump of nerve tissue we call the brain 
So our brain controls our perception of things, and that includes taste. Now we know we have taste buds. Um, this book that we're um, talking about today is really going to break down, um, you know, the sections of our tongue that taste that umami, like um, savory flavor, the bitter, so on. Um, but there's more to flavor than just our tongue and our taste buds. When we eat food, our nose gets involved from the back of our mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so we can smell the food and kind of imagine what it'll be. Our brain's involved first. We then taste it and our nose gets involved again through the back of the tongue and up the nasal passage. And then Amazing. it becomes like the whole head is involved in the experience of eating. Um, but that's not all. So this is the part that really um, surprised me. Okay. Our sense, I'm quoting again from this article, our sense of taste isn't just limited to the gut. For example, your nose is lined with cells that sense bitter chemicals. If there's a poison in the air, they reflexively stop you from putting it into your lungs. Um, you can, and end quote. So you can even experience like a dry heave um, where mm-hmm. your body is trying to reject a foreign mm-hmm. substance before you've even ingested that substance. In 2007, they discovered that cells lining the small intestine also contain taste receptors. Wow. When these intestinal sweet sensors detect sugar, they trigger a cascade of hormones, again, from the brain. Um, They send that message to the brain and the brain triggers these hormones that ultimately end with a squirt of extra insulin into the bloodstream. So the entire body gets involved in the digestive process. But why do we like the foods that we like? Our flavor preferences take um, shape over a lifetime, but they begin, where do you think? Where do we first start to like the foods we like? In the womb. In the womb. Of course, you know that. You're a mommy. (laughs) (laughs) Babies whose mothers consume garlic while pregnant are more likely to enjoy the flavor of garlic in breast milk. Uh, ooh, garlicky breast milk. Mm-mm-mm. Great. <laughs> Old nasty babies. Pregnant women who drink carrot juice are more likely to have kids who like carrots. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so there are a lot of reasons why we like what we like, but it's not always um, just us deciding um, that's for me and I enjoy that. Sometimes it's just our perception and nostalgia. It reminds yep. us of something. So what do we do with this information? We can remember that by cooking someone our favorite food, we are sharing with them a bit of our childhood and psychology. But cooking um, someone a food that they love is a way to honor them on a surprisingly Mm -hmm. deep level. And food doesn't have to be delicious. I mean, there are a lot of ways to inject nutrients into our body aside from eating. But we're designed to enjoy food. And that says something about the love our designer had for us. Um, So food is, you know, we're not talking about like gluttony here and like eating to avoid your problems. We're talking about like healthy, um, you know, enjoyment of food. It's a beautiful thing. Enjoyment of food. Yes, it is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it. That made me think about a, a time when I was pregnant. Was I pregnant? I was pregnant, I think. And I was absolutely craving. I it's a. A sandwich from I think the store was called Kizavats in Milwaukee when I was a, a high school student. And I just like I 
can't get that out of my head. So I literally drove back to Milwaukee and got that sandwich. And it was very <laughs> satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you had like psyched yourself up to want any even more. The worst thing is to <laughs> expect a certain flavor from something, bite it, and it tastes nothing like that. Oh, that's horrible. Mm, mm, mm. That's horrible. <laughs> it is violent. On um, one study I did yes, mention. <laughs> yes, violent. One study I did mention, they um like basically sent a mi- they had this these test subject and they sent a mild shock to their taste buds while showing them images. Now the the shock was designed to produce just a neutral taste. It tastes like nothing. But if while being shocked, these volunteers saw a sweet or fatty food um in front uh-huh. of them, then they thought that the shock was pleasurable and they wanted to be shocked some more. <laughs> but if they the saw a low calorie food, they considered the whole experience distasteful. So I wow. thought that was interesting. It really the blew brain. my mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it really amazing. blew my mind that none of us know what anything tastes like. We know mm. how we perceive it to taste. Yeah. And that can be applied in like a lot of aspects of life. But anyway. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. All right, you ready to take a break? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. And we're back. Alexis, can you give us some background on our author, Samin Nasra, and perhaps her inspiration for salt, fat, heat, acid? Can you first explain to me why we come back so fast from our break, man? <laughs> That's your perception of the break oh, being short. Oh, right, right, Because right. neither of us experience time in the same way either. <gasps> oh, that's Mind so true. Blown. Mm, in mm, fact, mm, is mm, time mm. even linear? It don't matter. But it's not, Dang. though. <laughs> but it's fine. But that's crazy. Okay, I mean, this is what we're doing. We'll I got to start taking naps before we record. I'm so sorry. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but tell us about Samin and perhaps her inspiration. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you a whole story about Samin, okay? How you perceived her. Ooh, now, how she told me she is. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Still, Samin grew up in San Diego. She grew up speaking Farsi and attending um, Persian school. She graduated from high school um, with literary ambitions, but always loved food and chased great taste. Her experience changed when she died at the famed Chez Panisse as a college student, where she had the most delicious meal. After that spectacular meal at Chez Panisse and excellent service, she wrote a letter to the owner. Her name was Alice Waters. And she explained to her that the dinner she had was so spectacular. She asked for job busing tables. Never before this date has she ever considered doing restaurant work. And she wanted to be a part of this culinary experience. So when she took the letter to the and resume to the restaurant, she was introduced to the floor manager who turned out to be the person that served her dessert the night before. After reading her letter, Samin was hired on the spot. 
After a few weeks, she was begging the chefs to let her volunteer in the kitchen. And once she was able to convince them, she was given a kitchen internship and gave up her job as a busser. She would cook all day, fall asleep reading cookbooks. She was being trained at the best restaurant in the country and surrounded by the best cooks. She asked questions. She read, cooked, tasted, and also wrote about food all to deepen her understanding. She would visit farms, she would visit farm markets, and she really studied culinary, uh, the culinary experience. And through this experience, she learned, sought that acid and heat were the four elements that guided basic decision-making in every dish, no matter what. And the rest was a combination of cultural and seasonal and technical things that you could get from a cookbook or other experts. She saw that as a mental checklist that she could use every time she started a meal. And when she mentioned it to another chef, he was like, everybody knows everybody that Everybody know that already. girl. <laughs> you don't go get them tomatoes I asked you for an hour ago. Meanwhile, she, she was like, <laughs> have you ever noticed how all you need are these four things? <laughs> She's a little bohemian. Yeah, and so <laughs> she's like, well... Okay, but everybody doesn't know that, and especially me. So she decided at that time she wanted to write a book that made it clear to amateur cooks everywhere that salt, fat, heat, and acid. If you're talking to me, just say so. (laughs) Was all you needed to know. And at the time, she was 20 years old, and she'd only been cooking for a year. And she realized she had a lot to learn. So she set out. Her, she set her work aside and she kept reading and writing and cooking and learning more and more. And later, her journalism teacher would encourage her to teach the concept of salt, fat, acid, heat as a curriculum to others. Samin has taught everyone from professional chefs to middle school kids to Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, a history, excuse me, a natural history of transformation using her revolutionary philosophy. In March of 2020, Nasrat and her producer started the podcast Home Cooking, and that was started with the goal of helping people cook for themselves in the midst of COVID-19. So, excuse me. She's also working on her second cookbook called What to Cook. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is a New York Times bestseller. It's won a James Beard Award for Best General Cookbook. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is her first book. It was named Book of the Year by the Times of London. She was a columnist for the New York Times Magazine until February 2021. One of the things about this book, this cookbook, that's different from other cookbooks is that instead of using photographs, she uses illustrations so that the reader or cook can let go of the idea that there's only one perfect version of every dish. And this allows the cook to improvise and judge what good food looks like on their own terms. And that is Samin Nasrat. I love that because if the dish doesn't come out exactly the way the picture is, I'm always like, man, what did I do wrong? But that's Mm -hmm. not how cooking works. So I love that she did that. I also watched uh, the 
one episode of her four part Netflix series. It was really mm-hmm. great. I loved it. I just haven't been able to get back to it. Um, mm-hmm. But this book made me listen to it. And I want to take a listen to her podcast, too. It seems really interesting. And she's just a pleasure to listen to. She's got one yeah. of those um, like warm personalities. She gets along with everyone. She's mm-hmm. just so, so cute. So, um, yeah. yeah, I love that. And passionate. Yeah. She's so passionate about what yes. she does. Yes, yes. I had the opportunity to watch all four episodes um, and I just really love them and her interaction and the way she was taking in the information she was learning. It's weird, but I just like how she um, talks to people with respect (laughs) without groveling. You know, Mm -hmm. she's just really interested in what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And she retains information. And she's like, remember 15 years ago when you told me this? And they're like, girl, (laughs) no. And she's like, well, it's come to shape everything I do. So thank you. (laughs) And they'd be like, okay. Girl, I don't remember what I said yesterday, but Okay. Um, yeah, no, she's adorable. Right. <laughs> so. mm-hmm, she is absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right. I love her laugh, yeah. too. Well, thank you for that content. Um, can you also please give us a brief synopsis of this book? And I never get the um, <laughs> the order right. So it's salt, fat, acid, heat. Can you please give us a brief synopsis of salt, fat, acid, heat? Ever wonder what it takes to prepare your perfect dish? Maybe a roasted lamb, hamburger. Brussels sprouts or spaghetti squash? How about a decadent chocolate mousse or jello? Samin Nasra explains how we can master the elements of good cooking salt, fat, acid, heat. By understanding these elements, we can stop relying on cookbooks and instead use those elements to guide our creativity and have fun in the kitchen. Kari. Who do you think would enjoy this If you're this looking book? to get out of a cooking rut, you know, you're making chicken and rice every night or whatever it is, um, or you just want to feel more confident in the kitchen, perhaps this is the book for you. And Alexis, uh, what were your first thoughts of salt, fast, salt fat, acid, heat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you introduced this book to me and you said you wanted to add it to our list. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, my God, a cookbook. I did. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. But then you didn't do it. And I was like, uh oh, I'm going to have to get that book. Yeah, you've been talking about this for <laughs> so, months. Just because I mentioned a book don't mean I really want to read it. <laughs> yes. And so I, I have just to be take trying note to impress of that, you. especially if it's a book that I want. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like a culinary novel. What? <laughs> And that's how yeah. she presented it to I'm me, friend. I'm a poser. And I jumped mm-hmm. on it. I have way too many cookbooks, but I took this one in. I just love the sound of it. And I think I had seen it flash across the screen on Netflix before. So I was ready to jump in. I was excited about the idea of covering this book. I really I'm going to start a category that we uh, discuss on this show when it comes to books. We often say beach read for a book that you can pick up and put down while drinking a cocktail and not miss a beat. Hello, Mariah Carey's oh. autobiography. But I also want to start a coffee table book category. And that's a book that you can just pick up and read a few pages of when you're sitting around your coffee table. You know, it's fine. You you read three pages, come back to it a year later, read another three pages. It's still crazy interesting, but you don't have to get to that end. There's no time uh, limit to finish the book. It's also a great book to lay out for your guests to thumb through. Um, I thought so. Yeah. 
So you would say that about this book? Yeah, okay. this is a great mm-hmm. coffee table book. I, I I absolutely agree with you. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Well, now it is time for our deep dive. A spoiler, quote unquote, spoiler filled <laughs> deep dive into salt, fat, heat, acid. Alexis, please. You have the stage. Okay. Okay. So part one, salt. Listen, Kari, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I'm going to go over these elements and then I'm going to ask if you have something you want to contribute about that you found interesting because I it was so much information in this book. I couldn't possibly. It would be a three hour long podcast. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Okay. I like it. But of course, mm-hmm. I'll be asking you questions throughout and jump in, of course, where you feel that. But I will conclude with asking you about some thoughts you want to bring out. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> Salt has a greater impact on flavor than any other gr- ingredient. So if we learn to use it well, our food will taste good. But what is salt? It's a mineral, sodium chloride. It is an essential nutrient that we need to survive. The body can't store salt, so we need to consume it regularly in order for our body's uh, basic biological processes to work. Processes to work. It helps us maintain proper blood pressure and water distribution in the body, and it helps deliver nutrients to and from cells. All salt comes from the ocean. Sea salt is left behind when seawater evaporates. Rock salt is mined from ancient lakes and seas. The primary role of salt is to amplify flavor. It also affects texture and helps modify other flavors. So we have to use salt better. And that's what this section focuses on. Add the right amount at the right time and in the right form. And you got a great dish. Better to add salt during cooking than at the table. Samin notes that in almost every case, everything you cook for yourself at home is nutritious and lower in sodium than processed, prepared, or restaurant food. And I 100% agree. Yeah, for sure. I had a colleague that would say she went to restaurants just so she could recreate the dish at home. And I thought... My, that's a novel idea. I just go to restaurants to eat. (laughs) From that comment, though, it helped me appreciate my home cooking more. I mean, I already loved cooking, but now she was like, turn that creation that you just enjoyed into a creation, uh, something that you can eat at home. So these days when I order out, I know with little effort, I can make a better version of that at home. You know, I'm lazy, so I order out a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Samin says salt can balance sweetness, minimize bitterness, enhance aromas, and heighten the overall eating experience. Kari, what type of salt do you have at home and why do you use it? I'll tell you what type of salt I have at home. Not enough types because this book (laughs) told me I need at least five different types. And I remember a tour of Tracy Ellis Ross's kitchen. She was like, I have five salts here and I just use the." And I was like, girl, if you don't get your, all you need is uh, (laughs) the iodine field. Um, I don't know, Morton salt. But since reading this book, I realized uh, I've been mistaken. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, you know, pink Himalayan salt is very popular right now, although she doesn't mention it. Um, but I'm going to say that's at least one variation of salt I have. And she does talk about sea salt um, and how all salt c- produces a completely vastly different both taste and effect on our food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should be adding them differently. Mm-hmm. So those large crystal mm-hmm. um, salts, we might want to like top cookies, uh, chocolate chip cookies with those toward the end of the baking process yep. um, so that the um, person eating it can really taste those crystals. So I have some larger salt, a crystal salt. Um, and then I have, what is it they put in salt? Iodine, yep, right? Yep, yep. So I made sure none of my salt has that in it mm-hmm. because that's pointless in the modern age. And it's like not great to have uh, in your salt anyway. Um, so I have to answer your question. The kosher salt, the like diamond thing salt. Diamond crystal <laughs> salt. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the one I don't have. All the other ones. I have. Okay. <laughs> so um, the sea salt, the um, Morton's mm-hmm. kosher salt. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm looking for that diamond salt, but I can't find it anywhere. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. What about you? Um, So I have um, sea salt. I keep sea salt in the house. Um, I stopped using Morton salt because I learned that it um, it's it's got a caking agent, an anti caking agent and a um, and it's got it's bleached. So I stopped using Morton salt altogether. All varieties of their salt. Um specifically the big blue box of um iodine salt yeah, yeah. and sea yeah. salt i think their sea salt too is yeah, bleached. it's really processed hey side note you remember when that um morton's uh, factory in chicago blew up with salt and covered <laughs> the cars in the parking lot with salt no that was crazy <laughs> are you serious that's a thing okay all right go ahead okay so yeah and then i have so i use that and i I started using kosher salt, the blue box, Morton's kosher salt about 15 years ago. And I, at that time I let go of iodine salt because a friend of mine was like, no, use kosher salt. That's the best salt. And since then I've explored different salts. Like I've had, um, what is it called? Um, cell grease. I've had that. And that is like a delicious salt. I've used pink Himalayan salt and Right now, in addition to my sea salt, which I have a fine grain one, I also have a coarse grain um, sea salt, grade sea salt. And I also have a Hawaiian um, lava salt, black salt, which I use for finishing. And that is really delicious. So table salt, as Kari mentioned, it's got iodine in it and it gives salt a metallic taste. Um Using iodine started back in 1924 when there was an actual iodine deficiency. And that was a common health Did problem. Did it call People polio? Getting it caused polio? Did I make um, that I up? I didn't see that, but goiters. <laughs> okay, I don't goiters. know what that is. We were okay. getting goiters. I, I, people with uh, thyroid problems, I, I think they need iodine in their system. So uh, Mort- Morton Sauce started adding it. Today we can get iodine from foods and um, dairy products, milk, yogurt, cottage cheese, cod, shrimp, tuna, eggs, prunes, lima beans, seaweed, um, nori, the stuff we use for sushi rolls. So we don't need to have um, iodine in our table salt. Kosher salt is used for koshering, which is a tradition 
traditional Jewish process by which blood is removed from meat. Kosher salt has no additives. And as I mentioned, I was introduced to that about 15 years ago. Samin notes that there are two major producers of kosher salt. That's Diamond Crystal and Morton. And she says they're not at all interchangeable. But she said it's great. Kosher salt is great for everyday cooking. Sea salts and natural salts. They're more expensive. There's the Muldone salt, Florida Cell, and Cell Grace. That's a gray salt. And um, the Muldone salt is like a, a flakier salt. And you're wasting it <laughs> if you use it to season pasta water or make tomato sauce. She said use them in a way that allows them to stand out. As Kari mentioned, you can use it on top of cookies, on salads, and um, caramel sauces. Now, they do make finer crystals of sea salt, and that can be used for everyday cooking. Kari, do you, use, do you add salt to your salads? I do now after reading this book. Just a little... With the handshaking motion. Yeah. <laughs> so I added salt for the first time back in 2019 to my salad. Well, I and I was say. just like blown <laughs> away. I was like, how is this even possible? I used to look at people that added salt to their salad and disgust. Like, yeah. why would you season vegetables like that? I mean, it's this supposed to be what are you a doing? good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But listen, judgment out the way. I love it. I mean, I haven't had it like that in a while, but I tell you, it's the best thing ever. Yeah, I, don't I can know why eat I just it. kale, lemon, and salt. That's mm, really delicious. Wow. Dinosaur kale specifically. Yeah. Salt, acid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> salt and acid. Samin says we should keep two types of salt on hand, an expensive one for everyday cooking and a special salt for garnishing. And the key is to be familiar with whatever salt you're using. Um, Know how salty it is, how it tastes, how it feels, how it affects the flavor of the foods that you add to them. Salt has the ability to unlock flavors. Kari, did you get a chance to try that tonic water grapefruit juice test she mentioned? Yeah, so I gave my husband two glasses of grapefruit juice, one containing salt and one not. He tasted both. I said, what's the difference? He said salt. So I feel like (laughs) I added maybe a little too much salt to it. Uh, Because her (laughs) point was that the salt removes the bitterness of the grapefruit. Now, we really love Mm -hmm. grapefruit juice. Um, so we like mm, that bitterness, too. but the experiment was still very interesting to see how the acidity in the grapefruit reacted with the salt. I think that's what I, what mm-hmm. I was observing. Um, that was extremely cool. She had a few other experiments in there and I've been adding more salt to my pasta water and whatever dish I'm creating with pasta, I'll put that water into the dish um, a little bit too. Now, I did have an error today where I used too much salt, um, but I'm just, you know, learning I'm just trying to learn. And that's the fun thing about it, Kari. She, the only way to have this experience and know, you know, you talked about the risk because she actually goes into how best to add salt to your dishes. Flick of the wrist. With the yeah. sprinkle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the flick of the wrist, what a pinch is, what that looks like. So in order to master the salt in your home, you have to make those mistakes. You got to over salt somewhere. You, you have to do it. It's necessary. Um, I tried the experience and it took the bitterness away completely. I am a lover of um, 
grapefruit juice as well. At, but I used the uh, whole grapefruit and I squeezed it. And I added the um, just a tad bit of salt and it was just delicious. It absolutely took that bitterness away. I think um, people add sugar to tomato sauce to balance out the bitterness. However, salt removes bitterness better than sugar. Yeah, I don't know if she, she agrees says, with adding sugar to your tomato paste. Yeah, or but tomato sauce. I know sauce. that people do yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. I, she didn't say it like it was, but I know people do it. And I don't like sugar in my, I don't like sugar in my savory dishes. So I'll add wine because wine is basically a sugar uh, once you cook it down. Mm. So red wine in a tomato sauce made with tomatoes from scratch is amazing. Um, oh, I'm going to have to yeah, try that. It adds like a rich Thanks layer of flavor. She says, salt can't be something you add and then check it off the list. It must be part of the process so food is seasoned from within. And that made me think of my Blue Apron recipes. I used to get a box pretty Your regularly. Your boyfriend's recipes? Blue Apron Oh, I'm sorry. Recipes. I, I ain't trying to put your business. Calm down. Man. <laughs> One of the things about the Blue Apron um, recipes is that you're like seasoning with every step. Now, I've had um, kosher salt in the house and um, sea salt in the house. So I was seasoning with those things. But I always felt like that is a lot of salt. But my dishes never were over salty. They never came out too salty. And so I think um, the type of salt has a big impact on how you season your food. And where she you put it no in user- your process of cooking. Mm-hmm. Mm. She says there's no universal rule about salting. Different cultures handle salting differently, but it should definitely be considered in the cooking process. Sometimes you have to give salt uh, time to penetrate the food and distribute itself within the food. Um, for instance, um, when cooking meats. Other times you have to create a cooking environment salty enough so that food is absorbs the pasta excuse me so the salt can absorb um the food such as with pasta i i I never knew that the purpose of salting water was to season the water i thought it was just to get the water to boil what (laughs) so yeah okay all right yeah but it's not it's actually to season the uh, pasta and so when i adjusted and I've been practicing. So I've had some, um, some bad tests with that where I've oversalted my pasta because of my salt water. And um, I'm coming to a point of balance. The last pasta dish that I made, I did not oversalt it. And I just, but I salted, I seasoned my water very well. Meat, every season, a piece of meat, ever season. Sorry. And salt, I think, takes, makes water take longer to boil. I think it hinders water from boiling quickly. It does. <laughs> it, it's it's not a big deal, but it's, it is a small percentage of exit a little bit. Um, ever season a piece of meat with salt and walk away? This process is called diffusion. Diffusion is a slow process. The salt you put on the meat is pushing through the cell walls to evenly distribute the salt. This time allows the meat to be seasoned from within and avoid that bland on the inside, seasoned on the top taste. Seasoning is, again, I repeat, is better when seasoned in advance versus right before serving. Think of that. 
Kari, have you ever had a bland piece of food served to you and had to douse it with salt or hot sauce to make it flavorful? <laughs> I remember we uh, went to some restaurant on this road trip with a bunch of friends and they had seasoning salt on the table. Now, if you go in the restaurant <laughs> and they say, here, here your seasoning if you want some, that means they not putting any seasoning in their food. And it was true. They didn't. They handed us all of this chicken. Now, this place is praised. I'm not going to say the name of it, but people love it. It's on every list. And um, I was there with uh, multicultural friends and all of us thought that the food was bland. In fact, <laughs> one friend took that seasoned salt and just started piling it onto the chicken to the point where he was just eating seasoned salt, it, eating the chicken through the salt. It was the grossest thing I ever seen. But it's what he had to do to digest that bland chicken. So to answer your question, yes. Yeah, so the state... You can still taste the bland food under all the hot sauce and salt. It doesn't fix no. it. The food, the food is, is still the food bland. is gonna be who it's gonna be. You can either believe it <laughs> when it's telling you who it is, <laughs> or not. Yep, that's right. Salt draws water out and dissolves protein strands into a gel, allowing them to absorb and retain water better as they cook. I've cooked a piece of meat without seasoning up, and it shrivels up. If you season with salt first, your meat will have more moisture. Actually, um, prepared a steak and kind of follow her directions for seasoning. And I um, had my coarse sea salt and I was heavy handed with the sprinkling, surely knowing that it was going to be over salted. But I was testing and it was perfect. It was the most delicious. <laughs> Kari, have you ever brined? And did you try the test in the book of seasoning chicken just before serving and seasoning overnight or um, anything else with seasoning meat? OK, so not with chicken, but I did season a ribeye um, and then let it sit seasoned um, in the fridge overnight. And I felt like the ribeye was drier than if I hadn't. Um, but I think that's to her point. So a ribeye is a very fatty mm -hmm. meat and fat doesn't really absorb salt. It's like the prosciutto test where the meaty part of the prosciutto is very salty and the fat mm -hmm. part doesn't have much flavor. But together they're perfect, the fat and the a meaty mm -hmm. part of the prosciutto. So for the ribeye it was likely the same where that fat meat wasn't absorbing the salt. Um, instead, I think it was probably pulling moisture out of the meat. The salt was uh, so it wasn't dry. I just think it could have been juicier had I not salted it. Salted it at all or not as much because it sounds like you may have seasoned it too far in advance. That's actually what I mean. I got to say, OK, yeah, I should have just seasoned it, um, seasoned it, let it get to uh, room temperature. And then cooked it mm -hmm. within one yep. setting instead of seasoning yep. the ribeye overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 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 too much seasoning, yeah. too much salt on that. Yeah. So I um, actually had an opportunity to try brining some time ago overnight and I made a, a brine bath and it was a turkey leg and it was a complete fail. The meat was tough and. I did not taste any flavor. So it's something that it's, you know, trial and error. But I think that's what I love most about cooking is the trial and error um, portion of it. Wasting money so she is gives, what it is. And I don't like that. It is. It is. It is hard. <laughs> but you either you eat it or you don't. OK, it wasn't unedible. It was one of those bland pieces that I was, you know, <laughs> filling with. 
sauce. She gives guidelines for seasoning meat, um, which are pretty helpful. Since salt is a preservative, you have to remember not to season too far in it ahead. For example, you shouldn't season fish a day in advance because it'll become tough, dry, and chewy. You can season that right before cooking. She gives examples of salting different types of food. And you can be careful. Um, you have to be careful about not seasoning them too early. That's very important. Samine gives a tip that I've used for years. And that is if you buy a piece of meat and you think maybe you're not going to use it um, before you cook it or you think maybe it's, you're not going to use it quickly and it's in the refrigerator. Maybe you think it's going to spoil. Pull it out, season it and then put it in the freezer. And then when you pull it out, it'll be nicely seasoned. Cooking foods in salted water, brine potatoes, that creates like the creamiest potatoes ever. I've had that. Delicious. Under salting water or not salting at all when cooking, say, green beans, forces the green beans to kind of relinquish some of its own minerals and natural sugars during the cooking process, leading to bland, gray, and less nutritious uh, green beans. Um. Can you explain brining for the people who don't remember? (laughs) (laughs) Brining is a a water bath, essentially, where you put seasonings. And that seasoning is usually salt, um, sugar, and uh, maybe like a rosemary or uh, kind of flaky with herbs. (laughs) Herbs. You're adding herbs. And you put that in your meat in there overnight in the refrigerator. It could be overnight, but they say you should brine from 12 to 24 hours. Depending on your piece. And commonly, like, turkey should be brined. I mean, just sitting turkey in water, though? Is that, like, disease? No, it's not bad. <laughs> nope. I'm just asking for the people who might not up. remember, have remembered with brine. I know. But some of our oh, listeners yeah. might not. I'm doing it for them. Thank you. For the people. For the people. Mm-hmm. I love the people. Mm-hmm. Um, reading this book really helped me come to appreciate the value of salting water. As I mentioned before, I did not know, I did not know salting water was about seasoning it. I thought it was about making the water boil faster. (laughs) And actually it's about cooking salt from within. I don't know. What do you know? Okay. All right. Let's end this discussion with other salt bases. Um, those are, so he suggests, she suggests layering um salt. yeah salt isn't and, the only salt yeah so other salts bases they're little fish packed in salt capers stored in salt or brine pickled or fermented vegetables fish sauce soy sauce miso paste cheese cured meats most condiments and again we have nori and other seaweed olives and salted butter layer it up she gives an example of layered salt and um caesar dressing it has not only salt but it has anchovies and parmesan so work more than one salt into your dish and and you can balance over salting it it varies yeah or you can invite an ex over for dinner because they stay salty (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) just kidding (laughs) <laughs> and on that note, Kari, did you have anything in salt 
area that you want to add? I'm going to get this salt right. She's taught me um, that I need to use more salt, but also now less. So I'm going to find the balance um, per the dish and figure it out. But I'm intent to do so. I'm also going to invest in a more variety. I'm going to invest in more varieties of salt used Mm, for different dishes. So thank you, Samin. Part two, fat. Fat plays three distinct roles in cooking. A main ingredient. When it's used as a main ingredient, it significantly affects the dish. It's the source of flavor and texture. Fat in a burger, egg yolk, and ice cream. Cooking medium. It produces the golden brown goodness of fried foods and crispy crust. Any fat you heat to cook food can be described as a medium. Seasoning, olive oil on a pasta dish, sour cream on chili, mayo on a sandwich, butter on toast. All seasoning. Mayo on a sandwich. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You don't put mayo on a sandwich? And neither do you. I do. I put it on my burger. Oh, um, no, I've done that. Let me stop fronting. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, to determine which role fat is playing, ask yourself these questions. Will fat bind various ingredients together? That makes it a main ingredient. Does fat pay, play a textural role? Flaky, creamy, or light textures? That's going to be a main ingredient. For crispy textures, it's a cooking medium. For tender textures, it could go either way. Will the fat be heated or used to cook food? It's a cooking medium. Does the fat play a flavor role? Added at the outset, it's a main ingredient. Used to adjust flavor or texture at the end of cooking a garnish, therefore a seasoning. Kari, did you complete the garlic test in the book? Mm, I don't remember if I did. What was it again? Uh, you peel two pieces of garlic, um, sizzle one and a couple teaspoons of water. Doesn't no. sound familiar. Okay, I didn't do that one either. So we'll move right along then. And they say, she says that if you cut these two garlic, say cut two garlic cloves, right? Sizzle one and a couple teaspoons of water and then the other and a couple teaspoons of olive oil and then taste the actual liquid the garlic flavor will be more um, powerful in the oil versus the water. And you can have the same effect when adding vanilla extract to butter and egg yolk and versus adding that vanilla to the flour Or canned tuna in water versus canned tuna in oil. Yeah, I didn't do this mm. experiment because I just felt like, I believe you. Add <laughs> <laughs> Aromatic aromatics directly into the cooking fat because fat enhances flavor. To select the right fat for you, um, you should get to know each how each fat tastes and which cuisines it's commonly used in. For example, olive oil is a staple in the Mediterranean cooking. Use it as a default fat when cooking foods inspired by Italian, Spanish, Greek, Turkish, North African, and Middle Eastern cuisines. Olive oil is produced seasonally. Look for a production date, typically in November, to ensure you are purchasing a current pressing. 
It goes rancid about 12 to 14 months after it's been pressed. So don't save it for a special occasion. Somebody brings you an expensive bottle of olive oil. Don't hold on to it. Use it. Samin suggests that you buy what you like. Allow your nose and palate to tell if the oil is good or bad. If it smells like a box of crayons, candle wax, oil on the top of peanut butter, then it's rancid. It's said that Americans are accustomed to the taste of rancid olive oil. And we actually prefer it. But that's that was so that's what sad. Sold that means that um, mm-hmm. the people who create who press olive oil and sell it will give us the bad stuff because that's what we like. And other countries get mm-hmm. the better olive oil because they know yeah, better. But that's what. Yeah, that's what we know. And that's what we used to. Um, there are every everyday olive oils just like salt and there are finishing olive oils she said purchase and use flavored oils with caution they are used to make uh, mask low quality olive oil yeah the oil. flavor is used to mask that rancid taste yeah mm-hmm Samin identifies a couple brands, but the brand that stands out to me is the Kirkland brand from Costco and I actually was able to grab that uh, um, grab one of those the yeah, other day. Yeah, she said it so usually rings well. Cool. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it kind of mirrors something that I heard from another uh, person that I watch on um, Instagram that talks about um, um, bad products. He talks about bad avocado oils, um, bad co- uh, the better quality, which is the better quality. And he has voted for this one as well. So that's definitely worth it. Butter. It's a common cooking fat in the U.S. and Canada, U.K., Ireland, Scandinavia, and Western Europe. It can be manipulated into several forms. Butter, however, is not pure fat. It contains water, milk protein, and whey silage, which contributes to much of its flavor. Seed and nut oils are considered neutral tasting oils. They're used when you don't want the fat to flavor your dish but they usually have higher smoking points. So you can use them to crisp and brown foods. Peanut oil and canola oil and grapeseed oil are, grapeseed oil are examples of that. Animal fats. All meat eating cultures use animal fat. Animal fat tastes more like the animal than the meat. um, Samin says fat tastes porkier than the pork. And the chicken fat tastes more chickeny than the chicken. So that has some good flavor. There's beef fat. And when it's solid, it's called sweet. And there's um, when beef fat is liquid, it's called tallow. Without sweat and another added fat, hamburger would be dry, crumbly, and tasteless. Pork fat, when solid, is pork fat. And when pork fat is liquid, it's called lard. Chicken, duck, goose fats are only used as cooking mediums. Ever had potatoes fried in duck fat? They're delicious. Fat makes meat taste good. Fat serves as the medium when cooking crispy foods. The word um the word crispy itself sells more food than any other adjective. And the best way to use fat, of course, is to pay attention to your sensory cues. Here's a pro tip. Preheat the pan before adding oil. 
As oil is heated, it breaks down, leading to flavor degradation and the release of toxic chemicals. The exception is butter and garlic. Um, they heat, they burn too quickly. So you know, be careful with that. Samin provides tips for rendering and perfectly cooking a bacon. Crisp bacon is the happy result of properly rendered fat. The key is to cook it slowly enough to allow the fat to render at the same time as the bacon browns. You can use the leftover rendered fat as seasoning or a medium for cooking. Kari, how do you cook your bacon? Well, I have an air fryer now because I'm fancy, so I can just throw it in there and it's perfect. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Um, I like cooking my bacon in the oven. Like Samin mentioned, it's really great. (laughs) Is your oven outside with the pig? Do you use bacon grease as seasoning or cooking medium? Uh, Between. um, So, so fancy answer. No, a correct answer (laughs) is yeah. Because when you cook your bacon, then you can take out the bacon and make some French fries in the grease. And it's great. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So I've tried um, for popcorn and oh, I yeah. use it for my eggs. And those are both really good. A friend suggested the popcorn. That was pretty cool. Um, smoke points. Some fats have smart, higher smoke points than others, which is the temperature at which it decomposes and transforms into this visible noxious gas. You know, that one that makes the smoke detector go off. The higher the smoke point, the further it can be heated without ruining the flavor of the food it's cooking in. Layering fats means using more than one fat. Consider cultural appropriateness of a particular fat and whether it will harmonize with the other Ingredients. Example, when making crisp waffles, melt the butter to add to the batter, but brush the rendered fat on the, from bacon on the hot iron. Balance. Maybe you use too much mayonnaise in the potato salad. Well, try adding more potatoes or try some acid. Kari, is there anything you wanted to highlight in the fat area <laughs> that I didn't talk um, about. I made a pasta dish a couple of weeks ago and was a little too savory. Um, so I was able to add some acid in the form of lemon, fresh squeezed lemon. And it, it was like oh, okay. a, an instant transformation. The dish was perfect. Um, so wow. yeah, I love the idea of acid coming in to break every everything up. Break this up. Break it up. <laughs> so break it yeah. Up. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Well, let's talk about acid then. That's part three. Acid balances flavor. Anything registering below a seven on the pH scale is an acid. If we don't have a pH meter in our kitchen, we can use our tongues as an acid sensor. Anything that tastes sour is a source of acid. Lemon and lime juice, vinegar and wine. But there are others, including tomatoes, chocolate and cheese i didn't realize um wine though was an acid yeah um and i don't know but probably your gin too which is why it's great with the cheeseburger i'll look that up oh that's fantastic please do acid makes our mouth water the most when we eat our 
when we eat sour food, our mouths fill with saliva to balance out the acidity because the acid is bad for our teeth. The more acidic the food, the more saliva rushes in. Gin is one of the, the way- least acidic options for alcohol. Okay, that's all. <laughs> oh, so noted. Thank you. The way acid contrasts with other tastes helps us enjoy food. Like salt, acid heightens other flavors, but differently. For example, when seasoning a pot of soup and you oversalt, the food becomes inedible. You'll have to add more water to reduce the concentration of salt, but that'll increase the volume of the soup. Acid balance is different. When you make lemon and mix just lemon and water together, it's really sour. And some might say it's too sour to drink. But once you add some sugar or sweetness, it'll be delicious. But the lemonade is no less acidic. The acidity level is the same. We just balance the acid with sweetness. Pure acid is sour. Acid from different sources varies in flavor and in its acidic concentration. All vinegars are not equally acidic. Neither is the acidity of citrus juice. Samin references um, a book called Oranges from 1966 by John McPhee, where he explains how the acidity of oranges diminishes with the orchard's proximity to the equator. There is a Brazilian variety of oranges that is practically acid-free. The location of the orange and the location of the orange on the tree will affect, uh, affect the flavor. She uses this to remind us not to rely on recipes because your oranges are different from the oranges in the recipe. Just like cooking fats, acids can change the direction of a dish. So we should allow geography and tradition to guide our choices when preparing dishes. Citrus is the acid of choice in the coastal climates. In Mediterranean countries, think hummus, tabbouleh, grilled octopus, and aniswa salad. Lime in tropical climates. She suggests never using bottled citrus juice. It's made from concentrate and doctored with preservatives and citrus oils, and it tastes bitter. Kari, do you use bottled citrus for anything? I have in a very lazy moment, maybe while making cocktails for friends that require lemon juice. And I don't feel like mm -hmm. squeezing all them lemons, but it's never as good as fresh squeezed. It just isn't. And it does taste weird. It does. When you buy a yeah, process. Same here. Yeah. S same here. But I've um I've gotten away from that over the course of being in the pandemic. So it's been really good to have um drinks with that fresh um lemon or lime taste. Pickles. Every culture has pickles. Sauerkraut, chow chow, kimchi. They all have the pickled pickles, pickle something. Dairy. It's like a secret weapon of acid balance. Who knew? I did not know dairy was acid. A Greek salad with feta, Mexican crema on tacos, yogurt on lamb kebabs. Dairy, it works. How does acid work? In addition to affecting flavor, acid can trigger chemical reactions that change the color and texture of food. Learning to anticipate these effects can help us make better decisions about how and when to use acid. 
Acid can dull greens, so wait to add acid to salads. It keeps reds and purples vivid. A bit of acid on sliced apples will keep them from turning brown. Acid keeps vegetables and legumes tougher longer. Anything with pectin or cellulose cooks slower with acid. Eggs. Acid encourages the proteins in an egg white to assemble more quickly but less densely. So by adding a few a, so by adding a few drops of lemon juice to eggs will produce a creamier egg. Adding a cap full of vinegar to boiling water speeds up coagulation of white and poached eggs and preserves the runny yolk. Acid tenderizes doughs, batters, and meats. I just, I feel like I really need to wrap my head around what what is acid and what's not. I was, it was really interesting to hear that honey, sugar, and mustard were acidic. The other day, I made lemon mascarpone pancakes with a berry compote. And in the berry compote is a hint of balsamic vinegar and it truly balanced out the sweetness. I tasted it before I added it. And of course, it was just really sweet because you mix it with mm-hmm. um, sugar. But then once you perfect. add that balsamic vinegar, it's perfect. Mm. Absolutely perfect. Um, you can macerate red onions before adding them to um, guacamole. It, it softens the harshness. And so you can do that with um, lime juice. We talked about layering acids at the beginning, but remember a dish can benefit from several forms of acid. Um, I think it's pasta alle vongole, which is pasta with clams, is a layered dish with wine and lemon juice. And I've made this dish before. I had so much fun making it and it was delicious. Is Um, this the dish you got from Mariah Carey's dad? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was delicious. You shared it with us. Thanks. Yeah. So that is acid. Kari, is there something from acid section that you'd like to share? Okay. (laughs) Well, let's get into heat, our final element. Heat. Pay attention to your cooking because each oven and stove, that's the biggest thing I took away from this section. Your oven and stove is different. Now, I already knew that because coming from um, Milwaukee to here and the stove that I have now, they definitely don't cook the same. But you got to pay attention to the differences. And then in recipes, when they talk about put it on 350 or 375 and your oven temperatures are very different. So you got to pay attention to the food versus the heat source with sensory cues, tasting noodles, the sound of sizzling sausage. So we need to learn how food responds to heat. Apply heat at the right level, at the right rate, so the surface and interior are done cooking at the same time. Know the results that you expect. Are you looking for browned food? Are you looking for crisp? Are you looking for tender, soft, chewy, flaky, moist? What are you looking for? Heat is energy. When food is heated, a chemical reaction takes place and that reaction affects the flavor and texture of food. Food is made of four basic molecules, water, fat, carbohydrates, and proteins, and each react to heat differently and predictably. Water and heat. 
Freezer burn and dehydration is a result of water escaping from inside the food cell and then crystallizing or vaporizing on the surface of the food. Kari, anything in your freezer currently have a bit of freezer burn? Yep, all the vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Choose food that can withstand a little dehydration and consess can successfully be rehydrated. I find that those um, freezer burned vegetables or berries, they lose their flavor. So um, I've started to hate a a full freezer and refrigerator. So I've been just trying to use my stuff um, regularly so I don't get any freezer burned foods. I hate it. Um, Soups, stews, sauces, they all dehydrate well and rehydrate well. When heating water at low temperatures, we can cook custards, braise, and poach food, giving them time to develop tenderness. Boiling water is the quickest way to cook food. When it reaches its boiling point of 212, it can kill pathogenic bacteria. And you start to see the steam, um, you know you can delay the browning and allow the internal temperature to uh, cook. If water is on the surface of food, it just can't be browned. It's not going to happen. Kari, what foods do you cook with boiling um, water? Trap steam. Pasta. <laughs> um, yeah, pasta. What about um, um, like sausages? Ever cook those with? In water? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. I've cooked. I've cooked. Um, like brats or something, I'll slow cook them in a little water, not boiling covered, but a little water, and then brown them afterwards. I haven't made those at home. I mean, I know that people do that, but yeah, I haven't. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. okay. Well, fat fats are flexible and they can withstand a broad range of temperatures to produce different textures like crisp, flaky, tender, and creamy. Chilled fats harden, butter for pastry dishes. Helps to achieve a flaky or a light dish. A gentle heat will render solid animal fats into pure liquid fats. Rendering or cooking down or fat um, based food from within. Did you know that comfit is poaching in fat instead of water? I did. I didn't know that. That was new to me. (laughs) Carbohydrates. Carbs provide food (laughs) with both structure and flavor. Starch is a type of carb. The other types of carbs, um, cellulose, sugars, pectin. Cellulose provides the bulk and texture of plant-derived foods. Um, It's not broken down by heat. They only become tender. Think collards and asparagus. Um, Sugars offer flavor. When heated, carbs absorb water and break down. Think about starches like potatoes and legumes, uh, seeds, grains. They need water and heat to make them edible. Soaking them overnight is often involved. To cook starches properly, we need the correct amount of water and the correct amount of heat. Cakes and bread baked with too little water are dry and crumbly. I had this experience not too long ago. And actually, this was... um, the lemon dish, the lemon um, drizzle that I made from the um, Thursday Murder Club book, it didn't have enough water. It was dry. It 
It mm. was tasty because of the sugar, but the cake itself was dry. Too much water or heat and cakes become mushy or foods, foods become mushy. Sugars. Sugar. It's the purest manifestation of sweetness. And when heated, it melts. Hot sugar is very temperature specific. Think candy, toffee. I made toffee a few months ago without a thermometer, but it was by complete accident. I was making a caramel sauce for a sticky toffee pudding and I cooked it too long. So I said, well, let's turn this into English toffee. It turned out delicious. It was a little thick, but it was delicious. At 340 degrees, sugar molecules begin to darken in color, and that's called caramelization. It produces new flavors like bitterness, fruitiness, caramel, nutty, sherry, and even butterscotch. You can caramelize onions and garlic. Pectin, it's an indigestible fiber, and when exposed, um, when uh, combined with sugar, acid, and exposed to heat, it serves as a gelling agent and you can make um, fruit preserves and paste. Proteins and heat. When heated, proteins unwind and then coagulate. To visualize this, think about how heat transformed chicken breast. It starts out flabby and watery and then it turns into something firm and tender and moist when cooked perfectly. But if you apply too much heat or overcook it, then the proteins will get tighter and tighter until it's dried out. Salt prevents proteins from drying out. Kari, did you try the egg recipe she recommended? No, I have to try that one. Did you try yes, it? Yes, I did. The, and what do you the think? The eggs are whisked on low with a bit of salt and a drop of lemon juice and butter along the way. So they turned out buttery, light, and creamy. And you really love eggs, so if it turns out well, I got to try it. I love them. Um, The Maillard reaction is the browning transformation of food that produces flavors that didn't exist in the pale version. Browning begins at 230 degrees. Kari, did you try the caramel salt test? I did not. (laughs) That's okay. Neither did I. Um, I didn't have time to make caramel. Um, She suggested that we make two batches of caramel, cook one a little longer than you normally would or as per the instructions, and then taste the difference over ice cream. I will eventually try that, but you don't have to give food away. It's only one of me. Temperature. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Cooking begins with the temperature of your ingredients. Food at room temperature cooks differently than food right out of the fridge. Think about cooking a chicken. If you pull it right out of the fridge and put it in the oven, it won't cook evenly. Letting it come to room temperature, it spends shorter time in the oven and it cooks more evenly. She mentions the perception of taste decreases when a food's temperature rises above 95 degrees. Pasta dishes and fried fish suffer if not served immediately. Um, Other foods are more forgiving. I have this thing where if a food is, if food is supposed to be hot, I expect to eat it hot. I hate hot foods served cold. It drives me nuts. Yeah, I know. But... (laughs) But she said, suggest serving um, warm or room temperature foods at gatherings. I got to think about that. It's a lot. It's a process. 
Baking is the most precise endeavor in the kitchen and we use an imprecise source of heat, the oven. So again, I mentioned it at the beginning of the heat section. Just don't be a slave to oven temperatures. Learn to pay attention Common to... Common sense is the best tool. Mm-hmm. Learn to pay attention to how your food is cooking. Is the food rising? Is it browning? Is it supposed to be browning? Is it setting? Is it smoking? Is it bubbling? Is it burning? Is it jiggling? When you read recipes, think about the temperatures and cooking times as strong suggestions rather than fixed rules. Set a timer for... A few minutes less than the recipe would suggest and use all your senses to check for doneness. And that brings us to the end of heat. Kari, is there something that you wanted to add? I just love how she really broke down. I mean, every page of this book was informative and she really broke down those four um, cardinal uh, elements. Elements. Mm-hmm. Really, really well, thoroughly. But I'm stepping on the final verdict. Um, Thank you for your (laughs) breakdown of the book. (laughs) Well, then let's just take a quick break, okay? Okay, let's do it. So, well, what's your final verdict? Would you recommend someone purchase this book? If you have a kitchen in your home, I think, yeah, you'd benefit from owning this book. I've certainly benefited. Um, Reading it from front to back, though, was a lot. And I don't feel this book needs that type of attention. This is a book you really should be picking up, putting down and experimenting with by and by. So as she brings out certain things you can try with fat, you should be trying those things one weekend, you and your significant other or you and yourself making that a little event and then putting the book down. Um, So I would definitely recommend it, but I wouldn't digest it uh, in the way that we digested it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I would take your time with this book. It's it's supposed to be fun. Um, so yeah, I'd highly recommend it. This is a book. If you have a kitchen, you'll love. What about you? Would you recommend salt, fat, acid, heat? I absolutely would recommend this book. (laughs) I like you feel like you do not have to digest it all in one sitting. You can certainly put it down because you need to think about a lot of the things that she's saying in here, um, and how they apply to how you prepare foods, um, What's your cultural twist on a food? So I think that's so important. And she has so many suggestions and ideas and um, contributions to how you can cook in the kitchen. It's just, um, oh, and she even offered some uh, grill tips, especially particularly about not um, cooking on open fire, right? Like right on the flame. You know, people like to get those grill marks. Yeah, it's a, it produces carcinogen, carcinogens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the coals, those heated coals are what you are to be cooking over. Yeah. Um, yep. And I've definitely cooked on the flame. So, yeah, that's really bad. Yeah. So, we, I mean, because we were thinking that was the way to go, but you could get just as good um, solid meal or steak without the flame and it could char up really nicely. So. Anyway, I love the book. Definitely recommend it. I'm glad I have the um, 
the physical book to keep, make notes and um, write in and redo over and over again. So yeah, love it. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that detailed breakdown of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. What are we reading next week, Alexis? Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. That's right. This is the first book I've ever read in a day. Really? I remember being a little girl sitting in the bathtub reading Song of Solomon. I'm not sure it's appropriate for little kids, um, but that's what I was oh reading at the goodness. time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I understood everything in it. I'm not sure I do now, but we'll tackle that next week. Thank Looking you all for listening. Thank you all for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Sanaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love love you too. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read something.